0: part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his Gothic profession. We have been in a study of apostasy as a part of our ongoing study of the book of 2 Timothy. Class teacher Doug Brady is carefully giving us the meanings of this book and the subject of apostasy in the church. This is the fifth lesson in the study of apostasy and is very important for each of us as Christians to understand. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of our new Worship Center building. We have a large group of people attending each week as we study the Bible. We enjoy having visitors to our class and invite you to come when you are in the area. Well, I see Doug is at the podium, ready to begin this lesson. Have your Bible ready as we go through the material in this lesson. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady.
1: Let's talk about this. We, in talking about this apostasy, we have talked about the need to be prepared, and we have two duties or two responsibilities that we have. Who can tell me what the first of those responsibilities is? What? Watchmen. To be a watchman. That's exactly right. Good job, Don. To be a watchman. And a watchman involves certain things. What's our second responsibility? Warrior. To be a warrior. Exactly right. And we've been talking about that in Jude chapter 1 verses 20 through 23 and we have talked about two aspects of this position as warrior number 1 they need to be building themselves up in the faith and the faith is what the body of doctrine the scripture the truth recorded in the scriptures number 2 they're to be doing what praying in the spirit now we're going to look at the rest of those things today And it is my plan to get to talking about revival at the end of the lesson. And we need to talk about it. And if I can just tell you, if we don't get through it today, we'll do it next Sunday. Let's look real quick at this passage in Jude. We've looked at building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the spirit. Now I want you to look at something. Let's go to the next slide. Remember that this is a syntax in the Greek that is opposite from the English. You always put the main verb English first and the participles following. You notice they put the main verb keep in the middle, after the participles of building and praying. But this is the central theme, which is the foundation, the foundation of this verse. And I want you to look at it. This verb keep is an aorist active imperative. It's not a suggestion, it is a command. It is something that is action that can happen here, here, and here at various points. And it means to attend to carefully, take care of, or guard. That's this concept. I want you to see it here. This command is to keep ourselves in the love of our master and to allow that love to guard. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? I think there's a number of things that means that we need to understand. One is to do that we must learn to live close to God, to live close to His people, not allowing anything to pull us away. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, notice it says this, "...in that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land in which you are entering to possess it. Notice, to keep, uh, keeping the people in the commandments of God. If you look at John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him And he will come to him and our abode will be with him. Notice, they are living together. We want to be living with the Lord. Can we do that here? Absolutely we can. The Holy Spirit of God is indwelling us. And that's what he wants, us close to him all the time. That is part of the keeping in his love. So to keep in the love of God involves these things. Number one, cultivating our love for him. How do you cultivate your love for him? Well, by giving him the opportunity to demonstrate his love to you. Now, what does it say in First John about God's love? We love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, we, this is something that God has done that I think is very, very important to understand. Let me give you first a human example. In Ephesians, when it talks about the relationship with the husband and the wife, does it command the husband to love the wife?
0: Yes.
1: Does it command the wife to love the husband? Yes. No. Well, there's something wrong. No. You just don't understand. You Amalekites never learn this kind of thing. God made the woman so if her husband loves her, she cannot help but love him back. Why is that? Because it tells and explains to us that when God loves us, we cannot help but love him back. You have, we're made that way. And that's the thing we need to recognize. We give him the opportunity to demonstrate our love for him. Husband, you ought to take a cue by that. You want your wife to love you more? Love her more. As we allow him to demonstrate his love for us, our love for him actively grows. And we can't can't really help it. But notice that we don't have to win God's love. Some people say, well, if you want my love, you've got to earn it. No, not with God. We don't deserve his love. But he loves us undeservedly. And we need to recognize that. In fact, we are already in the love of God, and we're instructed to stay there. How do we, though, demonstrate our love for Him? Oh, very good, Don. He's the first time He's answered right this whole morning. But He's by Himself, I mean. By Himself. But how do we do that? Well, Jesus says it over and over and over in John 14:15. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. John 14:21 He who has my commandments and keeps them notice that word keep again keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him Once again in John 15:9 and 10 just as the Father has loved me I have also loved you Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, I have to tell you, this week I was praying that God would give me a good example that I could show you of this. And this week, He gave it to me. There's a woman I know who's desperately in love with a man, and the man loves her just as much. But early on in their relationship, something terrible happened. He was arrested and charged with a crime. He was falsely convicted and put in prison for 34 years until finally they learned that he was innocent and released him. But during that time, did that woman keep her love for him or did she leave him? She kept it for him. All that time, believing him, supporting him, encouraging him. That is a perfect example of what that passage says, keep yourself in the love of God. That's what we need to be about, no matter what. All right, let's move on to the next thing. And I thank the Lord for giving me that example. Waiting anxiously for or looking for the mercy of of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Let's look first at this phrase, waiting f- anxiously for. It's komai" and, and prostikomai means to expect the fulfillment of promises. To expect the fulfillment of promises. But many times in the Greek word, you notice that that's a long word, prostikomai. That's because it's a compound word. It's made up of two words. And sometimes you can help you get a shade of the meaning of the word by breaking it down and looking at the two parts. That doesn't work really in English lots of times. I mean, take the compound word butterfly. You know, you look at butter and you look at fly. And what do you no It reminds me of some things my sons used to do, but it doesn't remind me of the insect at all. But pros means advantageous for, advantageous for, and the komai means to receive, so it's receiving something that gives you an advantage, and what he's saying here is you should anxiously wait for the advantage that's coming, the promise that is made to you, well, what is that promise? The promise is waiting for mercy from God, right? Wrong, very important, what is the promise waiting for what? Nope. The mercy. Have we not learned about definite articles here? The mercy. Not just mercy in different positions, different uh, situations, but the mercy. When they have the mercy, what is the writer expecting you to know? What that means, the mercy. What does it mean? Well, let's break it down. Because you look at it first, you're going to find what is the source of the mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's possessive of. Now, we're going to have to go a little deeper in the grammar here, but I'm going to try and explain to you something that gives a rich meaning to this. To eternal life. This word to is a very small word in Greek, just like it is in English. In Greek, it's ice. And ice is this preposition. Now, nouns in the Greek are declined, and what do I mean by that? They're not in English, declined. In English, where you put the noun in the subject tells you what position it has. If you put it right at the first before the verb, then it's talking about a subject. If you put it right after, then it's a direct object. And we have other ways for indirect objects, and object of prepositions. In the Greek, it's a much more scientific language because they either put that noun in the form of a nominative, genitive, accusative, dative, or ablative. Now, I'm not explaining; going to have time to explain what all those are. Nominative is a uh, is the subject. Uh, accusative is normally a direct object, but if you take a pronoun like ice and you put it in the accusative, and you then take the object of that preposition, here, life, put it in the accusative, then it's conveying a message that this is accusative of place or accusative of direction or accusative of time. In this instance, it's all, but primarily it's accusative of place. What do you mean place? The place where you're going to be, the place of direction where you're going, the place during the time you're going to be taken. This is talking about Jesus coming back for us. That's what this is talking about. And when you boil it down, you can begin to see that. And so this is what's going on, and this is what's important. His mercy is used here. Has. Does not have to do with salvation from hell and eternal damnation. He's not talking to people who need salvation from eternal damnation. Instead, in this context, he speaks of his concern, therefore, his return to save us, so we won't have to go through what's coming. That's what it's. If you look at this concept of anxiously waiting for in 2 Timothy 4:8. It says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That is, who are looking for the coming of Christ. Let me give you another passage, one we're probably familiar with in Titus 2.13. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, I am expectantly looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ because these days of apostasy will go from bad to worse. You know, it's interesting that word "bad" always seems to be progressive, because uh, you know, ten years ago it seemed bad, but now it's gotten worse. But it's bad now, and it's gonna get worse. It's not going to get better. And the next thing I want you to see is he's going to now take this word mercy and use it, as, put it in its verb form. In verse 22, And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the sin. Now, this phrase, have mercy, I, I kind of like the King James translation here, have compassion. Have compassion on some who are doubting. This word is again in the imperative. And so in conjunction with the mercy, he now extends to us, we must show mercy or compassion for those who are doubting. Well, why are they doubting? Because of persecution and the apostasy. That's the biggest thing, the apostasy. Now, this, I want to use an example. Imagine a major church in the Southern Baptist Convention, all right? And imagine that somehow Satan's forces are able to get to the pastor who's well-known. And he starts teaching things that are just clearly contrary to Scripture. A lot of people in the congregation, they say, wait, you know, we never were taught that before. That's not what we... But you know, this is him and he's saying this and they start being confused and they start to be doubt, starts to be hesitation. What are we really thinking? What do we really believe? Now, that's what he's talking about that is coming. How should we deal with him? With mercy. You know, I shouldn't, if I'm speaking to him, I. you idiots. What are you listening to him for? Listen to the scripture. The scripture is the foundation. Don't you know that? We've been talking about that for years. That doesn't show mercy, does it? Well, I ask you, in this kind of a setting that is of doubt, how did Jesus handle it? When somebody who was a believer started to doubt, well, let's look. I think we really ought to to see this, to, to come to understand it. Because doubting is difficult. Now, I'm going to tell you this before I get to this passage on Jesus. The King James doesn't use the word doubt. Doesn't use this concept, who are doubting. It uses a different phrase, making a difference. I don't think that's a very good translation at all. But what I did, because I live with someone who is KJV positive, I decided to look at somebody who's very well-respected King James Version teacher. Some of you know him. His name is J. Vernon McGee. Ever listen to the Radio Bible Club? When I looked at his works, on this particular passage, he says, the translators of the King James made a mistake here. It should be understood to be doubting. So... And you read this in your Bible, that's, that's what J. Vernon McGee says, you can make your own decisions, look it up yourself. But the scriptures are very clear as to how this happened. Now you remember, as Jesus was teaching his disciples and preparing them after he'd been rejected by the Jewish people, he said, listen, they're going to kill me. Remember Peter at first said, no, you shouldn't be talking like this. And what did he say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, he's telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified, delivered up, and then I'm going to be buried. But in three days, I'm coming back. He told them that over and over and over again. After he came back, he met immediately with some of the disciples, but all of them weren't there. Can you tell me who wasn't there for certain? Thomas. Thomas was not there. Thomas wasn't there. Did Jesus love Thomas? But is Thomas totally messed up on this idea? I mean, let's look at what, what it says in John twenty twenty four. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didinus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. How did he respond? But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails... And I put my finger into the place of the nails. I don't want to just see the scar here. I want to touch it. And I take my hand, and I want to feel his side where that spear went in. He said, and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. Now, when Jesus came back the next time to meet with these disciples, Thomas was there, and he said, This is the way he dealt with it. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. What is those words to me just seem to be dripping with love and mercy. I think Thomas, when he made this next statement, was not standing up. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. The understanding of some historians is Thomas spent a lot of time being a disciple in India and he did not meet a friendly death but he never doubted again so what did Jesus do he loved Thomas he confronted Thomas he presented Thomas with the true facts and he allowed the Holy Spirit to work in Thomas's heart and when we find people that doubt in the midst of this apostasy that's what we need to do that that four-step next The next phrase, save others, snatching them from the fire. We are to be about evangelism. Somebody, the Lord taught me a lesson on this again this week. Now, how many of you ever answer the phone and someone's talking who you don't know? And you say, we need to talk. Is this Doug? Yes, this is Doug. Well, have you replaced your windows recently? (laughs) We have a deal for you. Three for one. Now, I have to admit, that infuriates me. I get so mad. I got a call this week, and the girl told me her name was Maggie, and she said, I understand that you are a graduate from the University of Texas School of Law. And I said, that is true. Well, we are trying to collect money for fellowships for those students who are currently in that law school, who can uh, be able to work some on these fellowships to help causes that are helping our nation and important to our nation. And I said, yes, Such well, for like achieving social justice. <laughs> can you believe what was going on inside of me? But I was told this is an opportunity, Doug, you need to start using And I said, well, Maggie, let me ask you this question first. If you died tonight, and you stood before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, Maggie? What would you say? Well, there was quiet for a minute. And then she said, well, I would tell him that I'm saved, and I try to do good things, and some other things. And she said, tell you the truth, I just got out of the hospital. I almost died. And she told me a little bit about that. And... I was concerned with her answer and the Lord gave me another way. I said, well, let me tell you how I would respond if I died. And he asked me that question and I was able to lay out the plan of salvation for her. And then I said, can I pray for you? And she did allow me to do that. Now, I have to tell you, the next night I got a similar type call, not the same. And I said, can I ask you this question? Sure. If you were to die tonight, have a good day. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Okay. That may happen too. But God's now told me, Doug, these are opportunities I'm giving you. They want to talk to you. You talk to them. And so we are told, save others. Now, that word save, what do you think is the mood of that verb? Is it subjective? Is it declarative? Is it uh, interrogatory? Or is it imperative? It is a command. Now, notice, snatching them out of the fire. What does that phrase imply? What is it you think it is saying? Now, this word, snatching, it's the Greek word harpazo. Frank, you ready? Dawn, where else in the Scripture does this Greek word harpazo appear that is so important to understand? Okay. Is it first, second... 2 Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, verse 16. 16. I have to give her two of that on Frank, because that's where it talks about the rapture, that he's coming to rapture us. Frank and I have been trying to figure out questions to to, uh, stump her, and we keep failing. And I'm going to keep trying, Frank. But anyway, this word means to seize or to carry off which is what exactly he's going to do to us, carry us off into heaven with him as a husband who comes to get his bride. There are some people, though, we think are hopeless, you know, snatched from the fire. There's no chance. We've tried with these people, and there's just no chance they're ever going to be saved. I lived with that for a long time. As a child growing up, I was considered myself someone who was an evangelist who'd tell others about Christ. People in my uh, elementary school, I would take them to places like cancer and stuff and so they could get saved. And I would work with them and help them. But I used to talk to my fa- grandfather, whose name was V.E., my paternal grandfather, and he would say no. And I would talk to him over and over. My sister Julia would do the same thing. My mother would do the same thing to no effect whatsoever from the time I was very young up until the time he died. I was unsuccessful in ever convincing him that he needed to be saved. But seven days before his death, my mother took one more chance. And she explained the salvation plan to him. And he said to her, Kay, I cannot do that. If I did that, I would be a hypocrite. And I hate hypocrites. And she looked him in the eyes and she said, Dad, Jesus died for hypocrites just like you. And he invited Christ into his life. (laughs) Snatched from the fire. That's what we need. You can't ever give up. Because who is the one important in those kind of meanings? The Holy Spirit, exactly right. Not you, not them, the Holy Spirit. And you never can know the exertion of the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And that will happen. We need to think that that's part of what the warrior's plan is. Now, finally, here on this, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, that sounds kind of harsh. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. Doesn't that sound strong to you? That sounds awfully strong. That doesn't sound very tolerant to me. This word polluted means to defile or to stain. The concept here described as the flesh speaks of the sin nature in us. Some people want to say, no, it's just talking about sexual immorality. No, it's not. It's talking about the sin nature. And it's talking about god's view of that if you search other places of the scriptures god talks about this and he says it's like a stench coming up to my nostrils it ought to smell foul to us you know there are times in my house when julie seems to be able to smell much better than i can and she'll say i don't think you ought to go in the kitchen that trash can smells horrendous now what that means is you should need to go in there and you need to take out the trash, but she's smelling it way over here, and I, I can't smell it, and I get up close and open it up, woo, but you know when mushrooms have sit out that anyway, I want you to see that that we need to see sin as God sees it. Does God love the sinner? Yes, He does, but He hates their sin. I mean, think about it. To me, the worst example, are the the farthest reaching, did God and love Adolf Hitler? He hated what Adolf Hitler did, but he loved him, and he died for him. But Adolf Hitler rejected salvation, and because of that, he's going to spend eternity in hell. Of course, I'm assuming he rejected. I didn't know what he did in his last moments before he died, but... We need to see that sin to God is repulsive and sickening. Now, these are the seven responses that we should evidence in the face of apostasy. This is how we fight back. These four things. Before we look at them, let's look for a moment at this prayer that he concludes with. At the end of his book, Jude prays this week, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to our only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. How many of us pray and say, we want everyone to understand your glory, majesty, dominion, and authority? Maybe we ought to start doing that more. You know, here's the guy who grew up with Jesus Christ. Now, notice, he's able means he's capable and he is strong. He can do it. To keep, now this is a different word than the keep we've looked at before. This is philoso, and it means to keep a watch or to guard over. And he's going to keep us from stumbling so that we can stand firm. This word stumble is a alpha privative. It means not to be able to stand firm, to be exempt from falling, And then that's what we need to see. And he wants us to be in his presence. That's in the face of. Can we be in his presence before we're raptured or die? That's a question we need to answer. Now, here's the thing. People who say no, they're looking at it physically. What is the disciples mistake constantly? (laughs) They always consider things on a physical level. We need to consider on a spiritual level. We can be in His presence. He wants us in His presence. And we need to strive for that. And so these are the things. We need to be about building ourselves up in faith. We need to understand praying in the Spirit. We need to know we should be anxiously waiting for our Lord and Master. We are to have compassion on doubting believers. We are to seek to save non-believers giving the Holy Spirit a chance to work in their hearts, and we should be hating sin, the sin of both, and being really appulsed by it. Now, I have added an appendix to the lesson notes. And we're going to try and get through this. I don't know if we'll make it all today. We're going to talk about revival. Revival is a subject that both believers and unbelievers are discussing today. And we need to come to understand. And there are excesses on both sides of this discussion. Let me start this way. Is it a proper test for whether God will cause a revival to ask whether God predicted or prophesied that a revival is coming in the end days? Is that a proper test? If He predicted it, then it will happen. If He didn't predict it, then it won't happen. This is a logical fallacy, you see. If he did predict it, it will happen because he's God. But just because he didn't predict it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Think about this a second. You look at, say, an example I have in there of Noah and the flood. Did he predict the flood? Yeah, 120 years worth. Then we have the first example, I think, of a revival in the Scriptures, which was in Nineveh. Did he predict the revival in Nineveh? No, he didn't. Find me that in the scripture where he predicted it. Uh, That it's in the penumbras of the constitution somewhere. No. The scripture doesn't go with implication like that on, on important matters. If it's not said, it's not said. The first time that came up was when God told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them. And he said, no. Yes. But those were the instructions to do it. Not a prediction that it was going to happen. Uh, you know, before he came to Jonah. I mean, that's the very act of revival. Let me give you another example. If you look in Judges chapters 1 and 2, it talks about a key event that happens, is going to happen, in relating when Joshua died, there was no leader. And the people scattered, and they started doing whatever they wanted to do. Uh, Let's show that And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose a generation after them who did not know Yahweh, nor yet the work that he had done for Israel. And then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, Jesus is going to do something after that. Do you know what he's going to do? Well, let's first ask, was there any prediction that this would happen or that he would do what he's going to do? No, I don't find any. But look here in the next passage. Now, the angel of the Lord, who is that? Jesus, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. What was in Gilgal? Tabernacle with the ark to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land, which I have sworn to your fathers and have said, I will never break my covenant with you. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land and you shall tear down the artists, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Now it says after that, people start crying. But now think about this event. Jesus is making a personal appearance. Is he just talking to one guy like he did to Gideon? No, No, he's talking to all the people. They're all gathering, following him. What is, what's going on here? Was it predicted? No. Does that mean it's not going to happen or didn't happen? Of course not. Some, God doesn't predict everything he does. He predicts some things. Why? So that you can know I'm God. So to say, well, a revival is not predicted that doesn't mean a revival is not going to occur, Mark. You know, the words you just read there said, uh, God speaking, I will never break my covenant with you. There are those schools of thought out there that God has forgotten the Jews' the covenant with the church. But here is one of many examples. He has not, and he will not forget them, and there will come a time when he comes back directly for them to save them. Now, what is it... You know, our class started to pray for a revival after our study in uh, Romans chapter 1. And I have been continually praying for that. Many of us here in this class have been praying for that. That table over there, I know, prays for a revival to come to our nation. Does God want a revival? Well, it depends on what we mean by that. But does God want a revival? Yes, he does. Look here at 2 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Now, what promise is it talking about? The promise to come back and get us. The rapture. You could argue. Well, he said that 2,000 years ago. It's been 2,000 years. Has he done any? Has he come back? If he hadn't come back in 2,000 years, he's not coming. You're crazy to think he's coming. It's been 2,000 years. Well, how long was it from Genesis three fifteen till he came the first time? But listen to what he says here. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What does he want? Salvation for? Everybody. Everyone. Now, whoever the last one is, I wish they would hurry up and make up their mind. But what I want to say here is praying for revival of the kind God uses. That's something that we ought to be doing and we ought to be doing it at any time. But there's a lot of this stuff going on about revival and we need to look at it and I'm going to give you some tests whether a revival is of godly origin or not. Because if all the Christians are praying for revival and Satan can form a false revival, oh, he would love that. He would love that. And we can have these tests. And I've been searching scriptures and going through and trying to find what these tests. Number one, is the revival originated by the Holy Spirit or by men? That's the question. If it's by men, if, if we come out with a, with a statement... Let's say even from our church, you know, Southern Baptist Church. We're having a revival Thursday at 7 p.m. No, that's not the kind of revival we talked about. Am I saying that meeting is is worthless? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's not the revival that that talks about in the scriptures. Now, do humans have any say in that? Many times God says, you have not because you ask not. Should we be on our knees praying for revival? Yes. Yes. Who's going to decide? The Holy Spirit. Is he going to move or is he not? Is he going to bring a revival in the midst of this apostasy or not? We don't know. Hopefully he will. All right. Only God can. Now, let's talk about Asbury for just a second in relation to this test. If you look at their website, they're not just saying they have a revival now. They said they've had nine revivals. During, during their existence on campus. I just say if you plan a revival, I can assure you there will be no, none. There won't be one. Men don't plan revivals. I've playing, um, sharing the Jesus Revolution movie with many, um, even secular people saying, because the guy who wrote the article in the Time magazine in the, in the movie was very profound, even for a secular person to hear. To... I am very concerned about that movie. And let me tell you why. There was, I believe, a revival that came, but it was through Chuck Smith and what he did. The movie only focuses on one person and what he was, wait, wait, one person and he was living in sin. Did you know that he was, land was a homosexual and God judged him and died, he died as a result of AIDS. Let's, let's go on. I'm saying there's concerns about the movie. Jesus Revolution. All right, good question. Now, do the promoters of the revival claim that Jesus can't return until there is one last revival? If they say that, you know it's not a revival. Now, how many of you have ever heard of NAR? Yep, a few of the initiated one. That's the new apostolic Reformation, it's an unbiblical religious movement that emphasizes experience over Scripture. That's the thing that's coming, experience over Scripture. Let me give you an example. You know, the culture in Paul's day was kind of, gave no rights to women. So they wouldn't have pastors who were women in Paul's day. But we have a new culture, and we're much more enlightened And so we should have women pastors. What does the scripture say? No. No. Now you look at our favorite America's pastor. And I say that derisively. Rick Warren. You know, their church being kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. Rick Warren said, I'm leaving the church. But before he did, what did he do? He installed his wife as pastor. And others, this noun, That's another thing. His, this One of these guys is named Andy Wood. Please don't confuse him with Andy Woods. Andy Woods is a godly man. This guy, you know, if you're picked by Rick Warren. Number two, I used to think IHOP was a place to go get pancakes. <laughs> but it also stands for the International House of Prayer. An international house of prayer that's adopted many of the practices of contemplative prayer, you can look at the notes and you can see what they do. Uh, they claim that there must be a worldwide revival before Jesus returns. It's not, that's not predicted anywhere in the Scriptures. There's no claim to that. If they claim that, but you see, they are coming from a kingdom now doctrinal stand. The church brings in the kingdom, then Christ will come back. Now, is there going to be a rapture with them? No. There's just going to be a second coming. And we are going to create. The world is going to get better and better and better and better. I know we have so much evidence of that, don't we? <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what these people... But this, this apostasy is growing, and it's growing everywhere. The third test. Does it have as its doctrinal foundation salvation based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and him alone? If Tim Keller is running it, then No. But that's something important. That's the third thing, the third test I find. Number four, I want you to see. Does it reach the lost in the sense that it is not exclusive in the Christian arena? If the only one in the revivals are Christian, that's not a revival. It's got, revival is about reaching the lost with the love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Nineveh, you look at Pentecost, you look at Josiah... You look at the Great Awakening in the United States uh, or the Second Great Awakening with Charles Finney, Jonathan Edwards in the first one, you see people coming to know the Lord being saved. Are there mass salvations going on up at Asbury? I've heard people repenting who are believers and regiving. I haven't heard that. You know, I'm not telling you, I'm telling you, look and see for yourself. Apply these principles and see. You make your own determination. I'm telling you how to do this because this, I think this is going to break out everywhere. There's going to be people and there's going to be false revivals. And you need to be able to know true or false. That's important to know. Here's the test. So the next thing, number five. Does it focus on human experience or does it focus on the word of God? Any revival that doesn't focus on the word of God is not a revival from God. But a, but a counterfeit. Number six, does it point to and glorify the Holy Spirit or does it point to and glorify the Son of God? Well, now, wait a second. What's wrong with glorifying either the Son of God or the Holy Spirit? They're both God. No, the Holy Spirit never wants glory coming to himself. What is his job? To glorify the Son, not himself. He will never seek glory. He sends glory to the Father and to the Son. That's part of his job description. And if the revival is glorifying the Holy Spirit and everybody's worshiping the Holy Spirit, ah, false. That's number six. Number seven, does it lend itself to emotionalism and charismatic ideology at the expense of sound doctrine? At the expense of sound doctrine. God's not called us to walk in feelings. God has called us to walk in faith. Feelings should never be the guide. Are there times when something that feels good is in fact opposite from good? Oh yes, we all know that. Next, is there evidence that this revival has been manufactured in the evidence of the flesh or to further an agenda of false teaching or false doctrine? Now, you can look at what's going on in Asbury and see. Look at the lives of the people who are running it and see. Do the research yourself and you can make the determination. Maybe even more important is this last test. Is it promoting acceptance of sin? Is it promoting acceptance of sin? Can there be a revival led by the Holy Spirit if it's promoting acceptance of sin? You watch Asbury. They're talking about inclusion of the LBGTQ community or other bastions of sin. They are seeking that. One of the the statements that you will hear, and this is one of their talking points, is everyone deserves a seat at the table. What is that? Inclusion. No. The only one who should be having a seat at the table of revival is those who are willing to share their faith and can do that unencumbered by a life of sin. If you're living, here's a question for you that we need to to come to. If you are living in, let me give you an example. Can you have a good Bible teacher who has a mistress on the side? No, you can't. God's not going to power him. That's a glass with a cockroach in the bottom. That's what that is. And he doesn't drink out of that kind of glass. And so we need to understand that. Now, in this coming apostasy, there's not going to always be people who will be able to explain to you this is a good revival, or a genuine revival, or a false one. Now, I wanted to give you the tools this morning so that you could make the decision yourself. But now, will it take a little work? Yes, it will. But has God told us, well, if you become my child, I'm freeing you from all the work. You don't have to do any work. No, No, he's never said that. In fact, he calls us to the work. And we need to be about being a good steward and realizing what we should do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we were able to spend together today studying these important topics. I pray, Father, that you will work in our hearts, that you will help us to understand what it is that you want us to see. Help us to come to grips. Sometimes Satan is very good at fooling us, Father, but you know the truth. Help us to come to you and ask you what the truth is and to allow you to show us in your word what we should know and how we should be. Father, I just want to thank you for the chance to be able to share these things with my friends. I hope they don't take offense at me, but I have to speak the truth, Father, as you've instructed me. And I pray these things in the name of your Son. Well, I also want to pray, Father, that we could have a change in the ruling on the seating in this room so that we could have more expansive seating. And I pray that you'll work in the hearts of those who will be making that decision pray these things in your son's name and the power of your holy spirit amen Amen.